Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. Now, let's hear from Mike. As we all know, there is danger in this world. Parents warn their children about the danger of things like drugs. Doctors warn their patients about disease. And pastors should warn their people, his people, about the dangers that are in the world spiritually. There are dangers out there, spiritual dangers. The shocking thing is that there are spiritual dangers even in a church. It's not too much to say that going to church can be dangerous to your spiritual health. Does that sound like a surprising statement? What do you mean by that? What is the danger? In the second chapter of his second letter, Peter explains to us the danger in going to church. So will you turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 2, where Peter says, But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemning them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterwards would live godly, and delivered righteous Lot, who was opposed by the filthy conduct, I should say oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul day and night, by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the last days. Now, as is obvious, this passage is talking about false teachers. What it does is begin by describing these false teachers to us and some of the things that they do. Then, in the second part of the passage, 
it pronounces judgment upon them, and it concludes by telling us what we can do in light of all of that. So I'm going to spend most of the time talking about false teachers. But when I get to the end, I'm going to tell you what you need to do in light of that. So with that in mind, let's go back to verse 1. Peter says, But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you. Now, he's simply saying at this point, there are going to be false teachers among you. That is, in the church. That's the point. They're going to be among you. One of the interesting things about this verse is that it says there were false prophets in the Old Testament time among the people, but there are going to be false teachers among you. Now that has led some to make the observation that this implies that the gift of prophecy had already ceased. That he doesn't say there are going to be false prophets among you. He says there are going to be false teachers among you. The implication being that the gift of prophecy had already ceased. But the point is, and the point of verse 1, is there will be false teachers among you. When God does his work, Satan produces a counterfeit. Someone has said, whenever God erects a house of prayer, the devil always builds a chapel there. So there will be false teachers. Just as there is a legitimate $20 bill, there will be counterfeit dollar bills. And as any lady knows, as there are genuine purses, there are knockoffs. So there are false teachers among you. Now, the question is, how do we know a false teacher? You see, in the Old Testament, if there was a false prophet, it was easy to figure out who it was, because if he made a prediction and it didn't come true, voila, he's a false prophet. And by the way, he only had to make miss one. And according to the Mosaic law, if he missed one, he was a false prophet and stoned to death. So uh, it was easy to figure out who a false prophet was. But who, how do you figure out what a false teacher is? Well, that takes us into this passage. He says in verse 2, or at the end of verse 1, I should say, who secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them. Now, notice, they're going to bring them in. Where are they going to bring them into? The church, right? He's speaking to a church, a number of churches. So they're going to bring these false teachings into the church. They're going to do it secretly. So they're going to come in and probably conceal their false teaching until some appropriate moment when they can teach them. Then he says they're going to bring in destructive 
heresies, false doctrine, but notice that it's in the plural. It's not just one, it is many. Now here's how you know a false teacher. What is it they teach that is false? Well, just begin by looking at this verse. He says, they're going to deny the Lord. Let's just stop right there. They're going to deny the Lord. Now there's more, but just think about that for a second. The Greek word that's translated Lord in this verse is not the normal word translated Lord in the New Testament. This one actually carries with it the connotation of a despot, the ultimate authority in being Lord. So that the idea is they're going to deny the lordship of Christ. They're going to deny his sovereignty. Perhaps they will deny that he is God or even that he is a son of God. But they're going to attack his person. Then notice verse uh, 1 says... They're going to deny the Lord who bought them. The word translated bought is actually word, the, actually the word redeemed them. They're going to deny the Lord who redeemed them. Now, what does that mean? Well, the idea is that they're going to deny that Jesus died on the cross to pay for sin. Now, what's interesting about that is that they are denying the atonement, but that the atonement is for false teachers even, who clearly don't know the Lord, as the rest of this passage will indicate, so that this verse is a refutation of the doctrine of limited atonement. There are some who believe that Christ only died for the elect. The Bible teaches that Christ died for the sins of the whole world. But this is one of the verses that indicates that he died even for people who do not know him. So they're going to deny the person and the work of Jesus. Now, that's all embedded in this verse. As you get deeper into the epistle, specifically chapter 2 or 3, it becomes evident that they are going to deny the second coming of Christ. So here's how you uh, figure out who is a false teacher. They're going to deny the person of Christ, the work of Christ, and the coming of Christ. Now there could be other things they deny, but that is the core of what is a false teacher. Now notice it says they're going to come in secretly. The whole point is they're in the church. Where are you going to find false teachers? In a pulpit. In a pulpit. In a pulpit? In a pulpit. Amazing. You know, in 2 Corinthians, Paul says to the Corinthians, you know, if somebody came in and preached another Jesus than the one I preached to you, or another Holy Spirit, the one other than the one you received, and another gospel which you have, you know what? You would be so deceived by Satan, like he deceived Eve, that you'd put up with it. That is a startling passage of Scripture. That a genuine Christian 
can be deceived by a false teacher pertaining the very basic tenets of the Christian faith, the deity of Christ, the substitutionary death of Christ, the bodily resurrection of Christ, and the bodily return of Christ. Anybody who denies those core doctrines of the Christian faith is a false teacher, and they pastor churches. That's why I say attending a church could be dangerous to your spiritual health. Beware, they could be in the pulpit. Now, he then says in verse 1 that they bring on themselves swift destruction so that denying the doctrines of Christ can be deadly. Now, he develops this further later on. But he says this is destructive. It's deadly. So when I say it's detrimental to your spiritual health, it could be a whole lot worse. It could cause the death of some. Some time ago, a man wrote to Parade Magazine, and he said, quote, On 9-11, foreign terrorists murdered more than 3,000 people. But my question is, which American has committed the most murders? By the way, do you know the answer to that question? Which American has committed the most murders? The answer was that dubious distinction goes to, you know? Got any guesses? Jim Jones. The American-born cult leader who orchestrated the 1978 mass suicide of 912 of his followers in Guyana by coursing them to drink cyanide-laced punch. Religion can be deadly. Not just physically in that case, but spiritually to people who are attending a church that denied the very basic tenets of the Christian faith. So it is a destructive heresy. Now, look at verse 2. Many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth has been blasphemed. Now, the many in this verse are believers. They are secretly in the church. And genuine believers can be sucked up in this false teaching. That is very obvious because he says they are coming in secretly and because he says that's going to cause the truth to be blasphemed. When believers who once confessed that they knew Christ cling to truth that drew them away from it, that's what causes blasphemy. So he is talking to believers. He talks about their destructive ways. That particular phrase is translated lewdness in the book of Jude. Listen to what Jude says. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men, 
who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So what happens is these false teachers, this false teaching produces excessive, licentious, reckless, some say, immorality among the people, and believers follow them. That's what Peter is saying, and that's what Jude is saying. So, uh, they pervert the grace of God into a justification for sin. Since they aren't teaching the scripture, but talk about the grace of God, they teach it as if, since there's grace, then doesn't matter. Matter of fact, Paul brings up that very issue in Romans 6 when he says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. But the false teachers teach in such a way that that becomes an option and they could actually use a perverted view of the grace of God to justify sin. So it is the moral departure of believers from the way of truth that causes the truth to be blasphemed. The corrupt conduct of Christians in ceases Christian causes, I should say, Christianity to be blasphemed. So let me sum up what I've said thus far. Real simple. There are false teachers in churches. You aware of that? If you're not, turn on the TV the religious station, and just listen. They can't all be teaching the truth because they contradict each other, right and left. So this passage is saying, so far, false teachers are present in church. They deny the doctrine of Christ. They deceive believers, and they ultimately cause the way of truth to be discredited, and they bring destruction on themselves. They deserve to be judged. All right. The first part of this passage is saying there are false teachers in the church. The next part of this passage is saying, and they will be judged. Now, he says in verse 3, by covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words. This is the charge against them. The judgment will come very quickly. The idea here is that by covetousness, what they are really after is money. Financial gain is their goal. They are not ministers. They are mercenaries. Such false teachers deserve to be judged. As someone has said, the greatest theft thief is one who will rob you of the truth. Matter of fact, if, if you ever listen to preachers and they go on and on about money, if you've missed that, watch television. You know? A religious channel. And they're always saying, you need to give money. Now, I agree with that. The Bible teaches you ought to give money to the Lord. What always fascinates me is the TV preachers always manage to say, you need to give it to me. 
And I sit there, and I don't watch this all the time, but I've checked in every once in a while, and I'm thinking, well, now, wait a minute. Why do I have to give it to you? Why can't I give it to some other cause? But it's always, you've got to sow a seed by sending me money. You heard that? How many of you heard that? You don't watch television, right? All right, the religious channel at any rate. But they're all after money. And that's exactly what he's saying. By covetousness. The scripture repeatedly warns that false teachers are about the money. In the Old Testament, Micah said, Her head judges for a bribe. Her priests teach for pay. And her prophets divine for money. Her priests teach for pay. He says, yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord among us? No harm can come upon us. That's in Micah 3.11. Paul warns of useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such withdraw yourself in 1 Timothy 6.5. So what's going on here is that they're after money. And what they're going to do to get it is use, look at the verse, deceptive words. They're, you know, obvious that they came in and directly appealed for money and used as, as a cloak of covetousness that wouldn't get very far. So they exploit people with deceptive words. The word deceptive means to make up or to fabricate. Lies and deceptions are their means for making money. Satan deceived Eve by quoting scripture. Remember that? That's incredible. He questioned God's word. Remember he said, hath God said... He denied God's word. You will not surely die. And substituted his own lie. You will be like God. That is what false teachers do. They lie. They deceive. They lie about the very word of God as well as the character of God. One author refers to an ancient prophet who spoke of false teachers of his day, whose method was to follow wherever the applause of the crowd led. One of the first characteristics of a false prophet is that he tells people what they want to hear and does not tell them the truth that they need to hear. His aim is popularity and his touchstone is applause. So they're really after money. Now, that's the indictment against them. That's the charge. What follows in the next several verses are three examples of God judging people in the Old Testament. Boy, is this a popular subject? Am I being politically correct? When was the last time you heard a preacher preach on judgment? It gets worse. This passage even mentions hell. You're not supposed to do that. It's not popular. You won't gain a big crowd if you do that. Matter of fact, a few years ago, a very well-known preacher said, don't preach on hell. 
It'll scare people. That's sort of maybe what needs to be done, you think? All right, there's judgment, folks. There's judgment, and this passage says that. Look at verse 3 again. For a long time, their judgment was not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. He's simply saying there's judgment. It's not idle. It's active. It doesn't slumber nor sleep. It's wide awake and alive. So here it is, verse 4. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into the chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. This is a very fascinating verse. Fasten your seatbelts. This is about to get interesting. What is he talking about? This is a very highly debated issue, so I'll tell you that up front. It's recorded in Genesis 6, just the preamble to the flood. And what it says is, the sons of God cohabited with the daughters of men. Now, there are two interpretations of that passage. One is that the sons of God, or the sons of Seth, and so this is really talking about two different streams of humans cohabiting and producing children. The problem is, it calls it the sons of God. That phrase only occurs rarely in the Old Testament. It occurs in Genesis 6, and the only other place in all of the Bible that it occurs, at least I should say the Old Testament, is in the book of Job, where it is beyond a doubt, angels. So there is an interpretation that says that Genesis 6 is saying that angels cohabited with humans and produced a weird offspring. Now, I've grappled with that passage in Genesis some time ago, and frankly, if you just take the norm, the normal methods of interpretation, you're virtually driven to that conclusion. As a matter of fact, one English scholar looking at that passage said that uh, there is no scriptural evidence for any other interpretation. And I think he's right. So that there was this cohabitation of angels, fallen angels, with women. Matter of fact, it has even been suggested maybe that's where the Greeks got the idea for mythology of gods, they called them, cohabiting with women. That would be an interesting twist. I don't know that that's the case, but it would certainly be an interesting twist. This I do know, that this passage is saying that God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to reserve them for judgment. Did you notice that? They're cast down to hell, and they're reserved for judgment. I thought the hell was the judgment. No. Hell is the, is the waiting room for judgment. What? Matter of fact, if you read Revelation chapter 20, it says, 
death and hell gave up the dead that were in them, and they were cast into the lake of fire. So let me put it like this. Hell is a temporary place waiting for the judgment, and after the judgment, they're cast into the lake of fire. It's like being charged with a crime and being sent to federal pen, but you're first put in the county jail. The county jail is not your permanent abode. The federal penitentiary is, but we're going to put you in the county jail, and later there's going to be the federal penitentiary. So that explains this verse. They're cast into hell for judgment. The judgment puts them in the lake of fire. That's clearly spelled out in uh, Revelation chapter 20. So he's saying false teachers are going to be judged. God judges, and he uses angels as an illustration. The second illustration is in verse 5. Did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah and one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing a flood on the world of the ungodly. So, um, he judged the ancient world. As a matter of fact, the fact that these are put in juxtaposition uh, supports the idea that it was the sin of the angels that helped produce the flood. So, God judged the angels, and God judged the people as well. Only this time, he says, that God saved. So, even in the midst of judgment, God saved people. Interesting. There's a third illustration. Look at verse 6. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemning them to destruction, making them an example of those who afterwards would live ungodly. So the wicked cities are the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you glean through this passage, you will discover their sin. They were ungodly, verse 6. They had filthy conduct, verse 7. They had lawless deeds, verse 8. Lawless? The law didn't come till later. How could they be lawless? And the answer is, according to Paul, the works of the law are written on their hearts, according to Romans uh, and the Apostle Paul. So they did that which was contrary to nature. So when they sinned, when they got into ungodliness, this verse says, he turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes. Wow. By the way, that is really an interesting phrase. Um, it's unique in the scripture. But it was used outside the scripture in 79 AD describing the eruption of Mount Vesuvius and Pompeii was buried in lava. And it's the same expression that is used of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. So, he not only destroyed the cities of the plain, he recorded their ruin as an everlasting example of those who would come after him. Now, God judged the angels, the ancient world, and the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. By the way, we have now archaeological proof that the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah actually existed. 
Archaeologists have dug up some writings in Syria where the people in Syria are said to have done trade with the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. So we have extra-biblical verification of the existence of Sodom and Gomorrah. And now we suspect that they're under the Dead Sea. But again, in this case, he not only talks about the destruction, but he talks about salvation. So in verses 7 and 8 he says, And delivered righteous Lot, who uh, was oppressed with the filthy conduct of the wicked, For that righteous man dwelt among them, tormented his righteous soul day and night by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. This is one of those very fascinating verses. If you read Genesis, and that's all you have, it it doesn't seem to depict Lot as a very righteous fellow. As a matter of fact, it pictures him as being selfish, self-centered, self-serving, and sinful. Peter says that he was righteous. Is it possible for a genuinely righteous person to commit all those kinds of sins? You got it. Then he says, to make it worse, he was oppressed by that, that what he heard and what he saw tormented his soul day and night. The moral corruption oppressed him. He was shocked by what he saw, according to Peter. So Lot was spared. He was a, that's because he was a believer and because Abraham prayed for him. So, the point of this passage is, God judged Sodom and Gomorrah, but in the midst of that judgment, he saved Lot. God judged the ancient world, but in the midst of that judgment, he saved Noah. Interesting. By the way, uh, it tormented his soul. He was oppressed living in that sin. One commentator said, our greatest security against sin lies in being shocked by it. One of our problems living in modern times is that we are desensitized to sin. It gets piped into our living room. We watch it, we hear about it, and after a while, we're no longer shocked by it. And that, I submit to you, is unfortunate. So, in the first part of this passage, he simply says there are false teachers, and they're going to be in the church. They're teachers. They're going to be in the pulpit. In the second part of the passage, he is saying, and God will judge them. So he concentrates on the pride and rebellion of the angels the apathy and the disobedience of the men in Noah's day, and the sheer sensuality of men of Sodom, presumably because these were the characteristics of the false teachers he was opposing. Ah, 
the false teachers, not in every case, but in many cases, live very sinful lives. Now, I said there were three parts to this passage. He first tells us they are going to be present. He secondly tells us they're going to be punished. And then he has a word for us. Look at verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. All right, this is the bottom line of this passage. He says, look, the Lord knows, knows all about what's going on, and he, he will take care of the false teachers. He will punish them. God knows very well how to do that, how to punish ungodly, unreliable, false teachers. He's just given us three examples of God doing that. But what is also significant, and this is very important, is in verse 9 he says, the Lord knows how to deliver the ungodly out of temptations. Thus the reader is encouraged not to participate in the wickedness of the false teachers. More specifically, believers are to refrain from the temptations mentioned in this very passage. And if you go through the passage and pick out the sins that you are to avoid, they would be covetousness, immorality, rebellion, all ungodliness. Don't be like the angels of the plains, but be like Noah and Lot. Ah. So, this passage is simply teaching, as there were false prophets in the Old Testament, there will be false teachers today who will even lead believers astray. But know that God will punish the false teachers and he will spare the, un, uh, the righteous from judgment. All right. I want to conclude by making some suggestions of what this has to do with you. Would you like to know how to avoid false teachers? I'm going to tell you. The problem is more common than we think. Remember back in verse 2, Peter says there are many who will be led astray. Many will follow false teachers. You can no more compromise with false doctrine any more than a surgeon can compromise with a cancerous tumor in a patient's body. You've got to deal with it. So how do you do that? Well, I want to make three suggestions. Number one, you've got to believe the Word, not the preacher. Yes. Amen. In the book of Acts, it talked about some Bereans who were more noble because they searched the Scriptures to see if these things be so. Hear me, and hear me well. Do not ever accept anything any preacher ever says, including this one, unless he can show it to you in the Bible. And Kathleen is sitting there saying, in context, in context. <laughs> right. 
Because remember, they all quote Scripture. So that means you've got to become a student of the Scripture. You've got to search the Scripture. So when you hear something that sounds just a little off, it is your responsibility to search the Scripture. Now you can go ask other people who may know the Scripture better than you, but it's your responsibility to search the Scripture or you could be led astray. So, I'm, seri- I'm dead serious about this. You don't have to believe anything I say unless I show it to you in the book. I got plenty of ideas and opinions. If you don't believe me, just uh, ask me. I'll give you a few of them. But it is not my job when I stand behind a sacred desk to give you my opinion. It is to preach the sacred word of God. So that is your responsibility. Search the scriptures to see if these things be so. Uh, I could talk about this for the next hour. I won't. But let me just tell you, there's more false teaching going on than you can ever imagine. Now this passage deals, I think, with some core concepts like the deity of Christ, the work of Christ, the second coming of Christ. But it gets a whole lot worse than that. And if I get off on this, we'll be here till next Wednesday. Um, But really, um, let me tell you this. There was a Lutheran pastor named Wormbrand. I heard years ago on tape, I think he was in a concentration camp once, and he said, when you hear a sermon, you're four parts removed from truth. When you hear a sermon, you're four parts removed from truth. And then he said it like this, God is truth. The Bible is truth about truth. Theology is truth about truth, about truth. And a sermon is truth, about truth, about truth. So you're four parts removed from the real truth, which is Jesus said, I am the way, the truth. It's all about him. Now the reason I said that is because I think most preachers that too strong? Preach their theology. I've heard them. I've talked to them. I had lunch with two of them this week. And they teach their theology. I said to one, a dear friend of mine, you keep giving me theology. I'm telling you what you're teaching is wrong, and I'm giving you the text of Scripture, and you're quoting a theologian. Now, that's what we got to do, folks. We've got to get back to the truth of the Word of God, which is truth about Jesus, who is the truth. So anything short of that is false teaching. Be careful. I have a second suggestion. The second suggestion is that you grow. Chapter 1 is all about growth. Now think about this for a minute. To really appreciate what's going on in this book, just compare and contrast the, the, the virtues of chapter 1 with the vices of chapter 2. 
So what happens when you listen to false teaching is you get off into the vices and that takes you away from the virtues. So if you really want to stay straight, put your nose in this book and put your feet on the path of developing those godly virtues that are in chapter 1. So what is the product of the church? Well, I'm going to tell you what the product of many churches is. It's that you be a loyal church member. When the product ought to be that you add to your faith, virtue to your virtue, knowledge to your knowledge, self-control to your... Got the message? That you bear the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, you know the list. That's what you need to concentrate on. Growth to Christ-like spiritual maturity. And I have one other suggestion. You can do the first two but, and miss the third. You've got to be careful. So the third thing I would say is beware. Be vigilant. Don't go to sleep. Don't take anything for granted. Every time you hear a preacher preach, including this one, have I made that clear? It is your responsibility to look at the book and see if that's really what the Word of God teaches. So beware. That's it. In order to escape the false teaching, you need to know the Scripture, you need to grow in grace, and you need to constantly be vigilant, beware of false teachers. I understand that pelicans have the ability to spot their dinner high above the water and to zero in on it with amazing accuracy. They soar overhead trying to locate a school of fish. Suddenly, they drop their wing flaps aim their long beaks toward the target area, and go into a power dive, crashing into the water with a tremendous splash. Some, however, get lazy. Congregating where the fishermen's lines are on the bridge and the pier, they just bob around the water waiting to gobble up any catch that might be thrown back. Fishermen call these pelicans freeloaders. The problem is they often pay quite the price. One author describing this said, although endowed with amazing ability to discern the tiniest fish, they can't just seem to see the many fishing lines stretching from the bridge into the water. Often they go crashing right into them getting all tangled up in the process with a strange, what a strange sight to see a fisherman with a pelican on the end of his line. If you watch carefully, you will notice that many birds trail fishing lines from their wings with hooks embedded in their bodies. All of this because they refuse to use their abilities and became free loaders. Some believers are like free loaders. They're too lazy to study 
or do not employ their abilities which the Lord has given them to search out spiritual food which abounds in the ocean of God's word. Instead, they wait for someone to feed them. I wonder if there are any freeloaders in this church. You're waiting for me to feed you. Now that's not all bad as long as I'm teaching you the book, right? But you can't just be a freeloader. Gullible Christians who just snatch up what they hear with somebody tickling their ears are the ones that are most often hooked by false teachers. So I say to you, don't be a freeloader. Pattern yourself after the Bereans and search the scriptures to see if these things be so. Amen? And amen. Father, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for giving us teachers. Lord, thank you for also giving us the Holy Spirit so that we can discern what your word says. And we pray for the grace to be diligent in searching it out. In Jesus' name, amen.